Um, so I'll start this off with a question. Uh, are you a Christian who wrestles with belief? I'll, I'll be more uh, precise. Are you a Christian who wrestles with belief in a supernatural God who is able to work supernatural things in this world? In some ways, this is a, a timeless sort of phenomena. In some ways, I think this is actually a very uh, uh, more ascent, uh, ac accentuated in our current cultural moment uh, sort of phenomena. That there's something about our day and age that has made uh, disbelief uh, more pronounced or like holding on to belief more uh, difficult. When, uh, when McGill University's uh, philosopher Charles Taylor, he's now retired, when he wrote his book, a secular age, he started it out by posing this question. He asks, why is it that in the Middle Ages it was virtually impossible for someone not to believe in God? Whereas today, even for those who believe in God, it's virtually um, impossible for them to not have doubts. Even if they're like in church ministry. Do you follow that? So why is it in the Middle Ages it was virtually impossible for someone not to believe in God, whereas today it's virtually impossible to believe in God um, without being racked by constant doubts? So what is it, that he asks, that has changed? And the rest of the book he sets out to answer that question. But today, I'm not going to be recapping everything Charles uh, Taylor says. Not at all. My aim today is just to use this to sort of start us off and get us thinking. Um, and look at a much more modest sort of, uh, I have a much more modest goal, and that is uh, how does our present atmosphere of doubt affect our view of God's work in this world? How does our present view, um, our present atmosphere of doubt affect our view of God's work in this world? Because this text was written to demonstrate God's miraculous intervention in our world. It's written about a supernatural God who has power over disease, who has power over death. This is truly the God of the impossible. And yet I think for many of us, this is also a God, if we're honest, that we struggle to believe in. We might be you know, intellectually persuaded that Christianity is true, and yet at the same time still sort of tempted to disbelieve. What I'm trying to pinpoint here isn't so much an intellectual problem as much as it is like a psychological or a, a heart problem. Well, where are we in this whole sermon series? We're, we're in the biblical book of Acts. It's basically part two uh, of Luke's work. His first part is a biography of Jesus. Of Jesus. His second part um, is a history of the early church. And in this series, we're learning about how the early church uh, struggled and worked out being the church, which is the name of our series. Um, and so we've seen how the gospel started at Jerusalem when the Spirit of God came down on the believers. And then from Jerusalem... Jesus told them, go out, testify of the good news, right, of his resurrection, of the coming of the kingdom of God. You know, preach forgiveness of sins. And so from Jerusalem, they go out to Judea and Samaria, and from there to the ends of the earth. So do you have these sort of three stages to it? So what we're witnessing as we're turning the pages of Acts is the gospel moving beyond a Jewish community of believers based in Jerusalem to an international community around the world, right? And it's a community that we, the people of Church 21, following in the apostolic teaching, filled with the Spirit, we count ourselves as part of today as well, right? That you and I, we're part of that same church, that same community founded by Jesus and the apostles. And so our text, it lands us <clears throat> as the gospel is going out from Jerusalem, being carried by these 
believers, by these apostles, to the region, this middle region, the region of Judea and Samaria. And in this region, we have Peter performing signs and wonders. And so what goes on? Well, first we have um, the healing of a man who was paralyzed for eight uh, years. Um, now, this account is very short, and it wasn't, it wasn't read at the beginning, so maybe I'll... Uh, can you put it back up on the screen for us? Uh, go back. Reverse. 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 One more. There. Uh, now, now, as Peter went here and there among them, he came down also to the saints who lived in Lydia. There he found a man named Aeneas, bedridden for eight years, who was paralyzed. And Peter said to him, Aeneas, Jesus Christ heals you. Rise and make your bed. And immediately he rose. And all the residents of Lydia and Sharon saw, and they turned to the Lord. And so this is the first part, and then we have the, the second miracle story uh, that Brian read. And these two accounts together, they're only 11 verses in length. And you see in this first account, when, when Peter heals this man who's been paralyzed for eight years, what does it say? It says, immediately he arose, right? It's a totally uh, spontaneous remission. It's not a sort of a prolonged remission. It can't just be naturally explained. Um, and then from the healing of this man, Luke then turns our attention to the healing of a, a woman, a disciple named Dorcas, someone who in verse 36 is characterized full of good works and acts of charity. Let us put us forward to that slide. Um, there it is. Full of good works and acts of charity. And so uh, there's this woman, Dorcas, and then two men come from Joppa, and Peter's not in Joppa, but he's close to Joppa, and they say, hey, Peter, uh, our, our friend, our disciple Dorcas has died. Please come to us without delay. And so in verse 37, it says, um, in those days, Dor that's Dorcas, she became ill and died, and when they had washed her and laid her in the upper room, uh, since Lydia was near Joppa, the disciples, hearing Peter was there, sent two men to him, urging him, please come to us without delay. And so Peter rose and went to them, and when he arrived, they took him to the upper room. And all the widows stood beside him, weeping and showing tunics and other garments that Dorcas had made while she was with them. And so Peter uh, goes to Dorcas, and he finds, uh, well, to see Dorcas, there's the corpse in the upper room. And there's a sort of wake or funeral happening, and the people are standing around. And they're widows, and they're showing, like, these are the garments that Dorcas made for us when she was alive. Like, truly, she was a woman of good works, of charity, like it describes it. And what does Peter do? In verse 40, it says, Peter, he puts them all outside, all these, these weeping people, and he kneels down and he prays. And he turns to the body and he says, Tabitha, which is her name uh, in Aramaic, arise. And she opened her eyes, and when she saw Peter, she sat up, and he gave her his hand and raised her up. And then calling the saints and widows, he presents her alive. And so, wow, you have these sort of two uh, amazing accounts, almost progressively more impossible back to back. The first, this man Aeneas, paralyzed eight eels, healed, instantly walking. And then the second, a woman, right, dead, raised back to life. This is the reversal of disease, and this is the reversal of death. This is truly the God of the impossible. And I think many of us, we get stuck on that, right? We're like, that's impossible. <laughs> like, reverse my prognosis. Impossible. Mend that relationship in our lives. Impossible. Remove my doubts. Impossible. Change my selfish or addictive desires. Impossible. 
And yet if it's true that he is the God of the impossible, it matters because it can change that. He can change everything. And so that's what I want to talk about today. But in order to do that, I want to first address the doubts that we have about these events and then talk about the implications of them. In other words, we're going to first talk about the possibility of miracles and then the purpose of miracles. So first, the possibility of the miraculous. So how many of you have heard of the uh, Jesus Seminar? Okay, a few hands, good. Well, the Jesus Seminar, uh, for those who don't know, was a group of about 50 critical scholars from about 1985 to 2005 who sought to reconstruct the life of Jesus. So they would basically read through the gospel accounts of Jesus' life and determine which of these stories and sayings is authentic. And they would, use the, they would do this using a voting method that used beads. And so uh, if, if the bead was red, it meant it was authentic. If it was gray or pink, it was somewhere we, in the middle. We didn't know. Um, and if it was black, it was inauthentic. But there was a major assumption as they worked through the life, the accounts, the sayings of Jesus that the scholars assumed that anything miraculous simply just, it just couldn't be on the table because miracles by their nature, they said, were impossible. And so they would get to stories like, you know, water into wine or Jesus walking on water and be like, that's impossible. And they would throw in their black beads. And had they continued reading from, you know, the biography of Jesus according to Luke, had they kept reading into his account in Acts, and had they got to this story, they probably would have done the same thing, right? Oh, the miracle Throw in the black bead, inauthentic. Why? <laughs> Why do we have such a hard time believing in miracles? Well, whether you know it or not, you've been influenced by a Scottish Enlightenment thinker called David Hume. Now, I'm going to do my best not to lose you, um, and his arguments have been interpreted in different ways, but you've probably heard it in a contemporary way, something like this. Miracles are uh, unscientific and impossible, unscientific and impossible, because science has given us this set of laws that govern our world, and, and claiming a miracle would undermine those laws that govern our world. Um, I found a quote from the famous skeptic Michael Shermer that goes along with this. He says this, which is more likely, that the laws of nature have been suspended, or the person telling you the story is mistaken or has been deceived? Misperceptions are common. People make things up. We have a lot of experience of this. It could be an illusion, a hallucination, a mistake, whatever. All of that is more likely than a miracle. Well, well Shermer is right uh, to say that we should be careful that people, you know, they can hallucinate, they can be deceived, and so on. But I think there are two assumptions in his statement that need to be pointed out. And first is that he assumes that miracles suspend the laws of nature. He assumes miracles suspend the laws of nature. Now, C.S. Lewis has a famous illustration that he uses uh, for this, and it goes something like this. He says, say tonight I was to go home and I was to put 100 bucks in the drawer, and then tomorrow night I was to go home and put another 100 bucks in the drawer, and the third night I go home and I open the drawer and there's only $50 in the drawer. Now, what would you have supposed happen? That the laws of arithmetic had been broken or the laws of Canada had been broken? or my wife, Sandra, went shopping. <laughs> um, <laughs> not the third one, but you get the point. Um, how is it that you know that the laws of Canada have been broken? 
Well, it's because you know the laws of arithmetic. You know, you know math. And if, if you miss the math, you might miss the, the fact that someone actually stuck their hand in the drawer. See, math tells you that that, that drawer, it wasn't a closed system, that someone has come in from the outside and intervened, a hand from the outside. And the laws of arithmetic then, in this, in this example, you can see the laws of arithmetic, they've never been broken. They haven't been suspended. Actually, they continued to be true the whole time, even as the money was being taken out of the drawer. And so, what are we saying? Believing in miracles, believing that they're possible, it's not a result of disbelief in the laws of nature. No, rather, it's a result in belief that the universe is an open system. It's a result of belief that universe is an open system, that the God who set it up with all its laws and rules and regularities, he can intervene. Who's to stop him, right? Let me say it another way. If I were to take the iPad that I'm using to preach from, and I was just to, to chuck it up into the air, if we knew the, you know, the speed I chucked it and you know, its trajectory, I could predict with 100% accuracy, if I had the right math, exactly where it would land every time I threw it. 100% every time. Now let's say I was to chuck it up into the air, that same sort of movement. But this time, it was to suspend itself in midair. Like nothing about, what would you suppose had happened? Would you suppose the laws of gravity had been broken? No. You would suppose that a force of equal and opposite strength that you couldn't see had intervened in the system, right? And so you see that laws describe the the normal pattern of behavior, but they can't prescribe it. They can't prescribe what's going to happen. They can tell you what would happen if I throw the iPad up in the air in a closed system, but they can't prevent somebody from intervening in it. And so the question is not whether or not the laws of nature have been suspended. No, it's is the universe a closed or an open system? And if you say closed, how could you possibly know it's closed? If you're honest, you have to at least be open that it could be an open system. That the, it's possible. And so Shermer's first assumption is that miracles suspend the laws of nature. His second assumption is that miracles are always the least likely explanation uh, of an event. Let me go back to uh, his quote. He says, uh, that a person telling you the story is mistaken or has been deceived. It could be an illusion, a hallucination, a mistake, whatever. All of that is more likely than a miracle. So his second assumption, miracles are always the least likely explanation of an event. And I think in one way he's right about this. Miracles are truly uh, uh, singular uh, by definition. They're, they're out of the ordinary. They're unusual events. If I was to take the, the, the many... <laughs> smart university students in this room and I was to give you a pad and paper and say, go observe the funerals of a thousand people, go to their wakes. I would not be surprised if you came back and said, nobody rose, <laughs> right? Uh, dead people stay dead, right? That's common, that's the usual. And yet there are several singular, out of the ordinary events you believe in, even if it doesn't seem likely. See, whether if you, you think the universe came from God or you think it came from nothing, that's miraculous. Both are mir miraculous options. And the beginning of the universe, it's a singular, unrepeatable event that you accept, that you believe in. My former uh, prof 
a philosophy professor, he would say that in light of this, that we actually live in a miraculous world. See, so often we think we live in a natural world in which we sometimes hope to see and observe supernatural events. But actually, when you consider our beginnings, it's actually the opposite. We live in a miraculous world. And so you see, you can't just rule out events because they're unusual because they're extraordinary. Unusual events, they happen all the time. You know, funny enough, talking about observing wakes and funerals, when I was working up north in Labrador, I got involved in a Bible study that happened in Kawawa Chickamac. It was a First Nations community about 30 kilometers away. And I go there in the evening sometimes. And one night, the, the story of Jesus resuscitating Lazarus from the dead came up. And I began to launch into my usual explanation of miracles, sort of what we're doing today. And my friend Cheyenne, who some of you know, she sort of cut me off. She's like, no, 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 Jordan, we, we, don't, we don't need that. And she began to recount the story that she, of someone she knew about 15 years previous, and, and a number of people in the group knew personally, who had died. And at their funeral, they were having a wake in the home with the casket open. The person sat up. And people were so scared, they ran out the door, they jumped out the window. One of the ladies broke her legs jumping out the window. She was so freaked out. And this lady went on to recount that she had had an encounter with God, and God had sent her back. I was like, what? I, I was so shocked. The question I want to put is this. Is there something in our culture, or something about our present moment, that suppresses belief in the supernatural, that we tend to avoid it rather than talking about it, that makes it the least likely possibility, a miracle being the least likely possibility. See, I'm not saying that we should just accept every wacky and crazy, miraculous claim that you come across. I'm not saying that at all. And you know, I never did look into this story. You would want to find uh, sufficient, credible evidence from multiple independent uh, sources, witnesses. But maybe, maybe these events are more common than our culture is willing to accept or think. And if that's the case, then they're worth looking into. And what would I do if I was to look into this? How, could I, how should I assess a miracle claim like this? Do I assess it? I don't assess it, I should say, against the thousands of times that I haven't seen someone raised from the dead, our little study we did, right? Rather, I should assess it against the other possible explanations for what happened on that day. That is, how likely a miracle is, we assess it against its competing explanations, not against how unusual it is. Evidence can make a miracle the more likely option. And so when it comes to Ananias and Dorcas, Aeneas and Dorcas, uh, let's not be too quick to throw in our black bead, our inauthentic to this story, right? If we don't live in a closed system, God can intervene in this system. The miraculous is possible. And so what does this mean for us? That's the purpose of the miraculous. What was the, what was the purpose of these miracle accounts of Peter being recorded? Well, um, I want to just run us back to a little bit, two little pieces of Acts 2 uh, to help explain this. It says, Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs. And then in verse 43, and awe came upon every soul and many wonders and signs, there you have it again, were being done by who? Through the apostles. And so 
from these parallel statements, you can see what the text is saying, that the same sort of signs and wonders that were done by Jesus are being done through the apostles. And in our chapter, we see signs and wonders, right? Miraculous healing. Why? To confirm the apostles, and this includes Peter, they were in the same vein of Jesus. Peter's apostolic teaching has that God-given authority. We'll see more on this uh, next week. But this, what Peter has done has the same power and authority and brings the same glory to God. Now, we already know it, from Brian Sagner's preaching, like now we're going back probably a month, he preached on signs and wonders, and he talked about how Peter had a handkerchief in his shadow, and sometimes people are here because of that. We already know that Peter was able to work miracles. So why do we have this, or perform miracle? why do we have another account of Peter performing a miracle? Well, like all miracles, uh, like John calls them in his biography, they're a sign. And that there's something that, that point beyond themselves. And in this case, they're a sign of the inbreaking rule of reign of God, right? Coming back to this idea that we don't live in a closed system. See, the Jewish people had this future age that they were anticipating, an age in which, yes, God's rule and reign would break in and that the dead would be raised to life and that he would pour out his spirit. And yet when Jesus comes, he says the kingdom of God is among you, that it's, that it's present. And then the resurrection of Jesus began to mark the beginning of that end, that future age that w- they're anticipating. See, Jesus, he doesn't stay dead. This is what the resurrection about is. The colossal power of God, his hand comes from, as you would have it, like outside the system. And it brings that dead body of Jesus back to life. And so that means that the future, that future age has broken into the present so that you and I, we're now, we're living in a, in a sense between the times. There's an overlap of dimensions that's happened. The future is here at once, but it's also not yet. And so what is the purpose of miracle accounts like these? A miracle is, is a taste of the future, the future that has been won for you in Jesus, when healing, when all things will be made new, and the healing of all things uh, is complete. And so these miraculous accounts, they're evidence that Jesus has power over disease. And they're, it, it, it's, what it's saying is that Jesus has power over disease. It's also saying Jesus has power over death. This is what Jesus purchased for you and for me on the cross, that there's no more sickness, there's no more sorrow, there's no more pain, there's no more death. He is truly the God of the impossible. And so reverse my prognosis. Yes, absolutely, that is possible in the hands of God. Mend a relationship that is broken with someone else. Yes, that is possible in the hand of God, remove my doubts, yes, that is possible. Free me from a selfish addiction that is destroying my life and leads me to death, yes, that is possible. And you know what the ultimate miracle is then? That Jesus is in the process of making all things new and he wants to start with you. You can have new life in Christ. You can be free from the selfish, addictive behaviors that consume you and lead you to death. See, Jesus speaks those same words that Peter spoke 
over you. He speaks over you, arise, that the old is gone and the new has come. Die with Christ, rise with Christ. This is why we say it last week at baptism. It's to represent this new reality that is breaking in. If you die to yourself in your sin and your selfishness, you can be a new person in Christ Jesus. This is the ultimate miracle that Jesus offers you. Jesus himself, he asked this question, which is greater? That I can heal this man physically, or I say to him, your sins are forgiven you. You see, we tend to think that physical recovery, the healing, is the greater thing. But the resuscitation that Dorcas received was only temporary. She was going to die again. But a renewed mind, a renewed will, changed desires, a spirit reconciled with God. This is an enormous, an impossible, an eternal change that only God can work in you, and he offers it now. And so the forgiveness of sins, the miracle of new life and being reconciled with God, this is the greatest miracle you can ever receive. And while Dorcas was to go on to die again, Jesus would never die again. His flesh wouldn't see corruption, right? He was given a new, a glorious, an incorruptible body. And it says in scripture that the resurrection is the first fruits of what's to come. That is, it's, it's the first fruit that's produced from the harvest of heaven. It's an evidence and a guarantee of what has been done for you and I and Jesus. That disease and decay and bodily uh, death, it's all been defeated. This process of decreation has been defeated. It is dead, it is done. And new life for the believer, body and soul, has come in Jesus. And so this is the purpose of the miraculous. It confirms God's revelation and authority. It's signs that point to his inbreaking, his rule and reign in the presence, his establishing of the kingdom of God. It's an evidence and guarantee of the future that is to come, the first fruits. And so, if miracles are possible, and if miracles are purposeful, why don't we see them more often? And I think the shortest answer I could give is because miracles don't persuade stubborn hearts. Luke 16 says, if they didn't listen to Moses and the prophets, they won't be persuaded if someone rises from the dead. See, God doesn't just want you to, to believe in his power. He doesn't just want you to believe that, that he exists. He actually wants to be in communion with you. Think of the people that he reveals himself to in the Gospels, the people who long for and thirst after and delight in the life of God. And yet other times he chooses to not be clear about who he is in himself. And so God might have good reasons at this point for not allowing a miracle in your life. His word is enough. And if his word doesn't persuade you, a resurrection won't either. That's what this is saying. Blaise Pascal once said that there is enough light for those who desire only to see and enough darkness for those who don't. There's enough light for those who wish only to see and enough darkness for those who don't. And so how do we apply this text uh, to our lives? (coughs) Um, A text about God's miraculous intervention in the world. A text that shows that God is a God of the impossible. 
a text like we're reading, we, we get excited about what God has done, and yet we're still tempted in the midst of it to disbelieve and, and to doubt. And you know, up until this point, I haven't really answered that question that I started with. You know, what is it about our present culture that makes it harder to believe? Now, Charles Taylor and another guy I was reading this week, they have a lot of ideas, and I'll just give you one of them. And it goes like this. Maybe, it, maybe they say it's because our technology has changed so rapidly and it's become so all-encompassing and part of our lives that we no longer feel like we're subject to nature, but rather nature is subject to us. In other words, that our relationship with the world around us has become one under our control. And because of that, it's hard to fathom that someone, someone is out there who might have actually greater control and authority. Like, think about the current heat wave uh, we're in right now, right? It affects you, but it doesn't affect you nearly as much than if you didn't have air conditioning, right? And so we sort of have control over it in that you can just, you can just turn up the AC. Like, I'm perfectly comfortable uh, in here. But that's, that sense of control, it's actually a sort of illusion, right? And it's this way, it can be this way for so much of our lives. We forget that we're not actually in control, that the world, it doesn't revolve around us. We are actually subject to much greater things, much greater forces, much greater beings than us. And in this, we can begin to doubt that God is the God of the impossible. So I'm not advocating then that we just go Amish. <laughs> Tech has its many benefits. Um, but it can also make us forget. It has this psychological propensity to, to, to block things out, make us feel like we're the center and in control, leaving us feeling haunted or sensing an absence of God. And so what are we to do? How are we to live given this tension that we feel between these miraculous stories in our everyday lives? Well, the solution is always the same. It hasn't changed at all. It still applies. It's still perfectly relevant. So how do we resist the temptation? Um, how do we resist and overcome this temptation to doubt or disbelieve? I'm going to go through these four things here. First is to don't ignore your doubts. Act on them. God uh, calls us to love him with our whole heart and soul and mind. So diagnose what, what is it, in what way are you struggling? Is it an intellectual doubt? Is it a, a psychological doubt? Un, unweave that and invite God into the process. This, is a very, this first one is just very kind of preliminary, straightforward. And these next three I'll draw right out of the text. The second, remind yourself what God has done in the past. Remind yourself what God has done in the past. This can help you uh, working through these senses or feelings of, of disbelief. Recall the faithfulness of God in his word, right? The Bible was given as a, as a common witness of God, about 40 authors over 1,400 years, three different continents, three different languages, all testifying to how God has worked in history and been faithful to his people. Recall the faithfulness of God in his word. Recall the faithfulness of God in your own life. Uh, what events uh, have happened to you? What landmarks are there where you can see God's hand at work uh, in your life? What has he taught you in the past? How has he discipled you in the past for what you're going through right now in the present? 
how do you think Peter felt as he headed towards uh, Joppa? He's been, you know, he's in another town and he's summoned to call, come and, and pray for somebody who's died. Like, what must have been the feelings that were going through his mind as he went through this, right? Do you think he struggled with any doubt? I would think so, right? It's hard to imagine not. But did anybody notice the sort of deja vu of what Peter does when he gets to Dorcas? There's something reoccurring here. Peter has been in a situation a lot like this before. He was in a situation a lot like this with Jesus. The healing of Jairus' daughter. What does Jesus do? He comes to the house. There's all these mourners. He sends the mourners out. And then it says, who does he, he bring into the house? It says he brought in Peter, James, and John. And what does he say to Jairus' daughter? Arise. And he takes her by the hand. And so what is Peter doing? Right? He enters the house. He does the same thing. He's being a good disciple of Jesus. He probably had all sorts of doubts, but he recalled the faithfulness of God in his life as a disciple, and he put it into practice. And so remind yourself what God has done in the past. Faithfulness as a disciple. Maybe you think, well, I can't think of any sort of miraculous things that God has done in my life in the past. But what about the biggest miracle of all? The forgiveness of your sins, new life in Christ, being reconciled with the living God. God has moved you from death to life. How is he transforming you away from being the person that you used to be? Recall the faithfulness of God in his word. Recall the faithfulness of God in your life. So that's the second thing. Remind yourself what God has done in the past. Third, listen to stories of God at work in your community. What does Peter do after Dorcas is healed? Verse 41, it says he, he presents her alive. It was important for the church community to be able to join in witnessing what God had done in Dorcas's life. Now sometimes when you're feeling doubts, the, the church community can be the sort of the last place that you want to go to, the last place that you want to express those doubts. And yet the church community was, was made for such times as those, right? Even the most unexpected conversations can turn out to be wildly encouraging. I mean, what would it have been? You, you, you go to community that night and there's Dorcas alive again. <laughs> Listen to the stories of what God has done in your community. In our city group, uh, we recently started this thing where we're taking a significant chunk of, of each of the rhythms we meet to, to listen to the stories uh, of people's uh, lives. We say sort of, you know, tell us who you are from your grandparents until today. <laughs> what significant things have happened in your life? What are the landmarks? How has God worked in your life? And so we started this a few weeks ago. And even for myself, it was wildly encouraging to share my story, because when it was all boiled down, I was able to see how God had taken me through times of uncertainty, through times of doubt, through times of fear, he, how he had spoken to me in prayer, how prophetic words had been spoken over me that only made sense later, right? It, 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 was, it was wildly encouraging for myself, and so we all gathered around at the end of that, and we prayed for the things that were even going on in my life in the present, and then in this past week, uh, Miller, our friend, shared with us, and we were all like, wow, look at the faithfulness of God. Look at the grace of God in his life. And so listen to the stories of God at work in your community. Dorcas was presented alive, and it says many believed. See, this can help you fight the temptation to disbelieve. And finally, 
the final way is to live it out. What does Peter say after he heals Aeneas? Verse 34. Christ hears you, arise, and what? Make your bed. Live it out. Make your bed. Be obedient to your healing. This is our calling. Our calling to live out the joy of the future in the present. Sometimes even when you don't immediately see it. You think... Uh, for this man who is healed, or for many of the other accounts of miracles you have, you have this sort of thing like uh, rise and eat or take up your bed and, and, and walk. You have these sorts of, of commands that are given them, right? That they actually had to put their feet under them. They actually had to be obedient to their healing and, and, and try it out. And now it can be difficult to, to live out our calling because sometimes God doesn't choose to physically heal everyone. But he does call us to walk in the greatest healing that you and I have ever received. On Friday, I had a dentist appointment. And my dentist is this, this lovely Coptic Christian woman that I've gotten to know over the past couple of years. And last year while I was there, um, she get, began to tell me she'd been diagnosed with cancer. And she's so sorrowful. She's weeping me. And she's, she's telling me about, about a treatment that she received. And she nearly died. Um, and this past week, I was back in the office almost a year later, and I was so grateful uh, to see that she was there, um, that she was alive. She's still sick. She's going through uh, her cancer treatments. And as she often does, she's like, Jordan, what, you know, what has God been telling you? What are you preaching on this week? And I was like, oh, you know, I told her I'm preaching, you know, this week we're talking about miracles and how difficult it can live in that tension between intellectually knowing something is possible and then we still see these miracles so few and far between. And she was like, oh, Jordan, no. All of life is a miracle. My life is a miracle. It's a miracle that I have hope. It's a miracle that I sense God is still present. It's a miracle that God has been taking me through this. It's a miracle that he's with me today. You know, and in a sense, she's right. While she was still battling with cancer, she was walking in the greatest healing that she had ever received a heart set free full of joy full of hope despite her circumstances and so have you received your greatest healing jesus calls you to die to your life die to yourself and to rise with christ like my dentist be obedient to your healing jesus has defeated sin death and disease are these realities true enough for yourself? Are they true enough for you to change the way that you actually live your life? With God, it says, all things are possible. Truly, he is the God of the impossible. Will you walk in the newness of life that he offers you? The inbreaking rule and reign of God is upon us.